the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets. I'm your host, The Finance Ghost. I am Mohammed Nala of MoKnows.com. Mo is one of the most respected macro analysts to come out of South Africa. He is now in Canada, so we get his global perspective layered on top of emerging markets expertise. Together, we will unpack the biggest trends and issues and scratch beneath the surface to bring you our insights and share our love and passion for markets and investments. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor. Welcome to Magic Markets. Welcome to episode 25 of Magic Markets. It's our six-month anniversary on this project that uh, Mohammed Nala and I are so very excited about as the co-hosts and, and founders, I suppose, of Magic Markets. And 25 shows, six months. Mo, we've had a lot of fun and I think we've learned a lot along the way, haven't we? Yeah, I think it's been great. It's been a great journey and I, I think it's just the start. I think our listeners will, will certainly echo that sentiment. Uh, I really enjoy you know, these chats that we have and, and sharing it with our listeners. And I always say upward and onward. So, you know, Let's 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 keep pushing this. Uh, spread the love, guys. You know, share it with your friends, the guys you speak to at the Bryce who who don't know about magic markets. This thing's gathering some great momentum, and we really appreciate the role that that you all play in it. And Ghost, it's been it's been a great six months. Let's keep on going. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of momentum or lack thereof, the markets. Um, there's a lot we can. There's a hell of a lot we can talk about. A lot has changed in the last six months, or not really changed. I mean, the fundamentals of investing haven't changed, which is a drum that we've certainly been beating throughout this process but you know people could have taken uh, all the kids pension or all the kids education money put it all in zoom six months ago when we started this thing and they would be absolutely crying into their coffees at the moment or something something else perhaps and again this week we've seen some some really painful stuff going on in the markets but to be fair the fundamentals the drum that we've been beating for quite some time now on shows like you know vix not vix and all those other, we've talked about Tesla before, we've talked about the importance of valuation, of cash flows, of understanding what you're buying. All of that stuff still applies. And the problem with the momentum trade is that when the momentum goes the other way, it starts to take everyone with it, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I always say, ghost, people tend to do victory laps prematurely. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people, when you look at investing in the, again, I always say through the cycle investing, 2020 was an abnormal year. Uh, it was a year where we had a lot of retail participation, and I believe that's a good thing. But it's also a year where you had north of 80% returns on, on markets, and those are definitely not normal. Uh, and I've always said, again, like you say, in VIX, not VIX, I've also written about it on, on monos.com, that you've got to make sure that your risk tolerance and risk ability to take risk uh, actually matches up with your ability to sleep easy at night. And I think on that basis, you know, when you have flush outs, when you have periods of a lot of pressure, like we're seeing right now in the tech space, I mean, we've had a lot of pressure come through in the tech space over the course of the last couple of weeks, more specifically the last couple of trading sessions, that's when you really start to to, to sift out, you know, the, the wood from the trees. Uh, and it goes back down to the key point that we've always tried to hammer home on the show, which is that you could be buying great companies. You could be buying great stocks, things that you use, but what price do you pay for those stocks? And that's really, I guess, the issue here is that it's not to say that Zoom, for example, is a, is a bad company now. Yes, it's down 25%. Remember, a lot of these tech stocks had blockbuster earnings two to three weeks ago. 
And from those levels to now, they're mostly down in the double digits. And that just tells you that great company, good investment thesis, but what price are you paying or willing to pay for that growth? Yeah, and goodness knows Zoom is a lot more than 25% down since October, that's for sure, when people were buying at the absolute height. So speaking of the wood and the trees and, and perhaps the Kathy wood and the trees, uh, you know, Ark is a big story. And what's really interesting for me is people are talking about this now as though there's another great big sell-off. Now we know, because we've lived through a few of these market cycles, especially between the two of us, typically when there's a really big knock in the markets, you're talking a 30% sell down. I mean, that's a big crash. Now in this case, the NASDAQ is still up this year to date, not by much, or well, actually not bad. I mean, it's where it's about five, six, seven percent probably now, five percent in not even five months. I mean, again, that's not even bad at all, actually, in dollars. And yet everyone is talking as though it's Armageddon. But the reason is that the retail investors are not down five percent. The problem is they've all been buying the frothy tech stocks, they've been putting their money into ARC, and in many cases they are down, you know, twenty percent, which is the kind of levels that make people really upset. So we have a situation, I think, where a lot of the institutional money has been shielded. A lot of people who were shouting about, you know, Reg 28 last year and, oh, why is my asset manager doing this? And, you know, he's so boring. Why would he bother to be hedged? This is why. <laughs> it's easy when things are going up 100% a year, but eventually reality does set in. Yeah, I mean, we spoke about markets and, and kind of the froth in markets a little while ago. Uh, I think, like you said, it was VIX, not VIX, which was in Feb. And, and, and from from then to now, the aggregate market's up 5%. Uh, if you look at year-to-date, the NASDAQ's up 5%. You're right. So, you know, if you look at that, that theoretically actually tracks with a decent year in equities. The average year in equities giving you 15%, more or less. The other issue, though, is remember a lot of these stocks in the NASDAQ, and then specifically we've even gone to the frothy, more high-growth, illiquid stocks and ARK and some of their holdings, a lot of those stocks don't pay you a dividend. Uh, it's worse than that. A lot of those stocks don't make money yet. So when you start factoring all of that in, I mean, the S&P is up around 12% on, on a year-to-date basis. But I was looking at a couple of charts, and quite interestingly, we, we know that from, call it Q3, Q4 last year to the earlier part of this year, around Feb, it was a story of small caps beating the large caps. You know, there was that rotation. We had like a big push come through there. Uh, but that then reversed. And we've actually seen the S&P 500 beating the Russell 2000 index, which means it's the large caps again. And we spoke about fangs in, in, in the last, last week's episode. Uh, but what's more interesting for me is that it's the first time since 2018 that the Dow is actually beating the NASDAQ over a running kind of two-month time period. Now, that's interesting because the Dow is generally your, your older economy companies, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, there's an old thing called Dow Theory. And for, for those of you that are new to investing, go, go and Google it. You'll find Dow Theory where they say, you've got to try and look at the Dow Jones Industrial Index along with the Dow Transportation Index. And you've got to see if those are correlating to see if the rally that you're seeing in, in some of those Dow stocks is sustainable in terms of real economy uh, on the ground movement. Uh, and the long and short of it is, yes, it has. We've seen a lot of stimulus in the U.S. economy. We're seeing a lot of emphasis on infrastructure. And remember, that kind of investment tends to favor some of the older world, you know, construction, resources, uh, older world stocks. Uh, and it's not to say tech's not the place you want to be. It's just say, be sensitive to the price that you're paying. I'm going to say that again and again and again. Be sensitive to the price that you're paying on some of these tech stocks. Uh, I mean, Ghost, I went and I had a look. We spoke about ARK a little while ago. And I looked at ARK's holdings. You know, it's, again, it's public information. Uh, and I said, what of Kathy's 
58 odd holdings do I actually hold? Because a few shows ago, I remember saying, you know, I was getting nervous around some of my holdings because they were held in ARK, because I knew that they were illiquid. I knew that they were longer term growth plays. But because ARK had gotten so big in some of these holdings and they were holding, you know, again, in the double digits in the teens, they were holding large shares of these companies. If there was ever pressure in terms of outflows from that fund, they were going to have to push that pressure down into some of these illiquid holdings. And so I burned a lot of those holdings, call it roughly 20% ago, thankfully. Uh, and again, I, I still hold around nine stocks that ARK still hold in their portfolio. But those are the ones that I'm holding for the longer term. Of the nine, I'm still up on seven of those. Uh, and that's because it's through the cycle. I bought in at the right level and I'm willing to hold them over the longer term. What about you? Yeah, Mo, that's interesting. I, I don't really think I do, actually. I think I've been sticking more to, I mean, I buy the stuff that she likes to sell, you know, like Apple on a PE of around 27. <laughs> do you own Nintendo? Uh, I would own Nintendo indirectly through... I think some of the gaming ETFs. So there would definitely be some overlap there, but it's minimal. Like a lot of the direct holdings I have in the US, a lot of it were really recovery stocks that I bought when they were down and out. It's like Ford. It's been actually my best performing share, which is slightly hilarious. Uh, you know, locally it's stuff like MassMart's been one of my best performers. So I bought a lot of recovery stocks as single stocks, and then I did buy um, the fans. The only one I don't have is Netflix, um, which we've talked about many times on the show before about why I don't hold that. You know, then I hold like Disney instead. I hold Microsoft, that kind of stuff. NVIDIA, um, you know, that is probably somewhere in a Cathy fund of some description. But the thing is, it's hard to know because you know, as we were talking about before the show, her funds buy each other, which kind of creates this very complicated web. And no, there was actually a question I had on Twitter today, which is, what is illiquidity? And I think it's actually worth just spending a minute talking about that. So for those of you who don't know, a liquid stock is a stock that has a high amount of volume traded. In other words, there are a whole lot of people, or at least people with big holdings, who are trying to buy and sell that stock essentially every day. You want to see trade every day. Now, when you have an extremely illiquid stock, if you've ever gone to you know, any of the kind of trading platforms or wherever you get your share price data and you have a look at a share price chart, if there are big horizontal flat sections, <laughs> that is an illiquid stock because it literally didn't trade. The price didn't move for those trading days. Now, those are an extreme. I mean, Mo, I can't believe there are any of those in the US market. It's just too big. We've got a whole bunch of them on the JSC in the small cap space. But the problem with an illiquid share is that if you're trying to get out of your position, you often have to take a knock. You know, the quoted price, the midpoint of the bid offer spread might not be what you can get out at because you just might not have bidders for the price that you are hoping for. Now, the problem with ARK is that because of the way they've sold down their fan exposure and bought their smaller exposures in response to outflows from the fund, they are now sitting with a high proportion of, of very illiquid holdings. And to make it worse, they often hold over 10% in each of those companies. You just, you cannot exit that in a falling market. It literally can't be done. You will crash the price of each and every one of those shares, multiples of what we've seen thus far. I mean, a wonderful example of how share prices can crash when there's a big seller was Bill Huan when he needed to get out with, uh, with his hedge fund. I mean, there were some massive companies that were down 20% on, I think it was a Friday, I almost remember it now. And, and that just shows what happens when there are big sellers in the market. Now, can you imagine if Cathy and Ark need to get out of some of those small frothy tech companies and there's just no buyers because her buyers are all sitting in her fund watching it fall apart. 
it'll be hideous. Yeah, very in fact, ghosts, I mean, we spoke about it in, in that show, you know, Arch Egos, uh, which was a play on Archegos. Uh, and I find it ironic that it was Archegos, which is how you say it, because now it's A-R-K-K, Archegos. But the interesting thing is, is, is Bo Huang uh, was actually provided some of the seed funding for four of Kathy Wood's ETFs in the early days. So again, you know, maybe there's some circular referencing thing. But I mean, let's, let's go back to that point on circular referencing. I mean, Kathy's running an ETF. Uh, which is probably a better structure, I guess, than a mutual fund in that, you know, there are a number of ways they can settle. If you decide to redeem and you're kind of cashing out to a portfolio, they can do an in-specie settling. And that's maybe a lot of, a lot of details. They can give you the, the stock rather than having to liquidate the shares uh, and give you the cash if you ca- if you elect for an in-specie settlement. Uh, that said, to your point, when someone holds Again, in the double digits, over 10% of largely illiquid stocks. It doesn't really matter what your long-term uh, hypothesis is on that particular stock if you're faced with redemptions. If you're faced with redemptions and if the person redeeming does not want an in-specie or a stock settlement, if they actually want their cash out, in that instance, you are compelled to sell the shares. And what concerns me is, whilst it may well be legal uh, Kathy Wood reallocating some of the funds from some of her ETFs to buy units in the other ETFs uh, could, in some instances, be construed as the fact that she needs to meet those redemptions. And in order to do so, she's tapping into the cash resources in some of the other funds. Uh, so, you know, those kinds of things, like I say, I, I, I hope it's certainly not that, but they do tend to raise some of the warning flags. However, if you're interested in shorting ARC, for example, I went and I had a look. Uh, and if you try this, the script lend fee to try and borrow the stock and sell it short is savagely expensive at 38%. So it's not really a trade you're going to be able to put on the books. Uh, but again, even if you had a view on some of the underlying holdings, they're illiquid. Your ability to even get some of the underlying stock is going to be very expensive and very constrained. It's just a bad setup just in case the stars don't align and the market leans heavily against you like we saw in some of the, the more meme-orientated stocks earlier in the year. And I don't use leverage in my personal portfolio. I never have. So what I end up doing is when I just don't like a stock, I just don't buy it. So I don't go and try and short it. I mean, I would have been killed on, on Tesla. I still stand 100% by my thesis on that thing. But I would have shorted it and been murdered as it went to $800. I mean, it would have been overs. I still think it belongs way down from where it is now and it's heading in that direction and, and, and may it get there sooner than later so that I feel better about that. Um, but, you know, reality is when you're shorting something, you are taking big risk. And to your point, when things are obvious shorts, the cost of borrow goes through the roof. So it's really difficult actually to make money from shorting. You've almost got to spot something that, you know, is quite cheap to short and other people haven't noticed it. And that's part of why these short sellers do these research-led shorts. So they go and put a short on, release a research report that says actually this thing is what big fat fraud like Steinoff and then they make a killing but I mean those are really the exception rather than the rule and and comes with a very large disclaimer and warning especially in the era of of GameStop and the way we saw you know reddit traders leaning heavily against people that play in the short space so I think there are a lot of dynamics that have changed in this market over the last year or two years I and, and, you know, that just changes, I guess, some of the noise in the shorter term. What it doesn't change, though, is what is the longer term view? How should you be viewing this? And I mean, we spoke about it again before recording the show, just around how you view valuations. And, uh, you know, I saw something that you wrote quite recently in your ghost mail that you sent out to your subscribers around some of your thoughts there. But maybe let's take the listeners through that and then I can share some, some of the, the flags that I look out for. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the thing with valuations is it all comes down to really two points. The first one is growth and the second one is cash flows. If something's growing really quickly, then it can start to justify a better valuation. And that's just looking at future multiples. Where is the valuation going to end up? If something is converting into cash, then that growth actually means something, which is incredibly helpful. It doesn't help if it's just revenue, but the company has no chance of ever actually making a profit. I mean, Uber can grow as quickly as they like, but it still doesn't excite me because the cash flow conversion is really just horrible. So I look at the combination of the two things and the thesis or the base principle that I always apply is that literally anything can be a worthwhile buy at the right price. Long term, if they were the same multiple, would I rather have MassMart or Facebook? That is the easiest decision in the whole world. I'll have Facebook all day, every day. But they aren't the same multiple, or at least they certainly weren't, you know? And you can buy something when it's kind of down and out, and that's the art of value investing. It's when you can see that there's a disconnect between what this thing should be worth and what it's currently sitting on. And then growth investing, which is when you're buying the big growth story, and provided the growth is there and it's converting, then it's okay. As a rule of thumb, I get nervous at sort of PEs above 35, I start to just not get involved. Just Or if I do, it's got to be for like really good reasons. Anything below that is kind of in play. And in South Africa, you know, we always argue, or I see a lot of it on Twitter around, you know, this thing is so cheap. It's a PE of five, it's a PE of six, it's a PE of seven. The problem is it's been a PE of six or seven for the past five years. And five years from now, it's probably still going to be a PE of six or seven. So if the earnings are only growing at 12% a year, that share is going to do 12% a year for you. If the earnings are growing at 8%, that's what they will grow. Because if the multiple stays consistent, the share price will grow in line with the underlying earnings. It's just maths. So you're hoping for a re-rating of the share price because the multiple becomes structurally higher. And as soon as the multiple is too high already, that re-rating can only go in one direction, and that's down. So as soon as growth disappoints, the multiple re-rates down, and you see a situation where there's been blockbuster earnings, it's amazing, it's double year on year, it's 50% up here, it's 30% up there, band share price down 15%. Why? Because too much of it was priced in. Yeah, I think that's that's hit the nail on the head. You know, you say PEs of, of above 35. I mean, I, I tend to look at it in a slightly more segmented basis. I'm sure you do too. So, you know, at a, at a headline level, I would almost say a PE of 25 and it starts looking a little, a little frothy. And remember that the, the PE is effectively the inverse or the inverse of a PE is an earnings yield. So I look at, for example, the earnings yield relative to what you can get as your risk-free rate. So if, for example, you're at a PE of 20, that's an earnings yield of five. Um, so that's the way I tend to look at it. Uh, but also to your to your very important point, it's not just about earnings. You know, sometimes there's a big earnings number, but there's no conversion to cash flow. So I also like to look at our earnings tracking or our cash flows tracking earnings. Uh, if not, it's a red flag just from an accounting perspective because companies play funny games and they like to shift earnings around or shift expenses around and it's all legal, but it's 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 accounting acrobatics if you want to call it that. Uh, and then, you know, lastly, I think the, the important point as well that people need to realize, and it's hard to realize this when the market has ratcheted up by 80% in a year, is that for a company to consistently grow its earnings in the double digits at 25, 30%, you know, and that, that's good earnings growth. That 
takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of momentum. It's why a stock like Amazon, for example, was growing at earnings growth rates of 35, 40%. And it did so consistently over a long period of time. So on a simple PE basis, it's always looked expensive. Its earnings multiple is always very high. But if you mapped that against actual delivery on earnings, you would have seen that that PE stayed consistent and the earnings kept on coming through and the stock then effectively continued to to, to, to rate higher in line with that. Um, So at the end of the day, it's almost deconstructing your overall returns. Uh, And right now, again, in the age of people flicking around on their phones and buying and selling stocks with high frequency, uh, some of this nuance is lost. But the nuance is that you've got to wait for the earnings to come through. Your portions of your return are partially a re-rating in the stock, as you indicated, if the PE actually ratchets up because a company is delivering higher returns. And then, like I say, cash flows generally tend to correlate with dividends, which over the longer term, over the short term, yeah, fine. You know, if you're really taking a, a play on a stock that's just starting out, Don't expect any dividends or expect very low dividends. But as a stock matures, dividends become a very significant portion of your overall long-term return. I think we need to also just talk about the RAND while we've got time. I mean, I know that's a currency that is perhaps a distant memory for you, but for those of us uh, still living and breathing the RAND, um, you know, it's quite important that it's sitting at at, a touch below 14. It creates this incredibly interesting situation because normally what happens is the US market sells off and the RAND falls apart because it's risk off. Instead, what's happened is the RAND has strengthened and the US market is selling off. And that's quite juicy. So I, for one, um, funded my account today and I was waiting to see what US markets would do today, but it seems like they caught a bid finally. I still think they've got more to go, but uh, we'll see. It's impossible to try and call the bottom because to call the bottom in ZAR means you have to call the currency and the US markets. I mean, good luck. I'm happy to just get close to the bottom. Anything close to the bottom, if I can sell, which I never really do, but close to the top or just avoid buying close to the top and just buy as best as I can towards the bottom, I'm happy with that. So I'll just be buying a NASDAQ 100 feeder fund this week. It's just nice and cheap because I'm not actually switching the money into dollars. I'm not getting hurt on the bid offer spread there and paying all the fees. I'm literally just buying a relatively low cost tracker. And that that works for me. I had a look, Satrix NASDAQ tracker is currently trading I think where it was in July last year in Rand. So that's a really cool opportunity in my books to go and and just get some more global exposure into my life and just take advantage of of where the markets are. And if the Rand strengthens further, I'll probably buy more. If the US stocks drop off more, again, I'll probably just keep topping up. It may not be the perfect bottom, but it's close enough. And uh, and we'll we'll see how that goes. I'll I'll keep you posted, Mo, because you're probably not looking at uh, what things are in ZAR anymore. It's Canadian dollars now. Now, so I mean, like the ZA is always close to my heart. I mean, home is is South Africa, and 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 the rand actually takes up a significant amount of my my mental space. I mean, again, it's it's a nice one on our six month anniversary to to point our listeners towards our very first episode, which was actually talking about the rand. Uh, and the reason why it's important is that you know in that episode we discussed the concept of fair value on the rand, and at that time, at around fifteen rands, you know that was kind of close to fair value. Now, the same way you'd look at a stock, uh, and again, I haven't updated those numbers recently, uh, but it it would have changed because commodity prices have ticked up. You know, your your current account has has, has swung into a nice surplus down there. U.S. rates are structurally lower, uh, as are South African rates. So. All of those are inputs that go into any fair value estimation on, on a currency. And again, I'll refer our listeners to the original show you know, about the RAND as well as some of the pieces that I wrote on monos.com about the same issue. 
where we are right now, just sub 14, the last time I checked, uh, from a technical basis, on a technical analysis basis, you know, I know a lot of guys are watching 1385 as the next level, if that breaches, obviously a little bit lower. Um, where does that stack up in terms of the longer term trend is that the rand oscillates and it kind of goes goes to one or two standard deviations away from trend and then mean reverts it's got this nice mean reverting behavior over the very longer term and right now we're sitting at a standard deviation below the trend so it does suggest that there's an opportunity for those looking for dollar exposure to go and get some of that. Uh, as I've discussed on the show before as well, and we don't ever give advice, but the way I, I look at this myself is I decouple the currency decision from the asset decision. Uh, is the RAND something I want to be in right now or do I want to diversify and get into dollars right now is a separate decision from do I invest in U.S. equities? Uh, I tend to echo your sentiments. I, I think that there might be some pressure still to come in terms of some of the some of the indices globally, and I'll be opportunistically waiting to do that. What do you do in the interim? And I'm more risk averse than you are, so I'm not going to go and buy a Nasdaq tracker. I'll just park the money in cash and wait for specific buying opportunities on stocks that I like and have liked for a long time, but just am not happy with the entry price right now. And we've spoken about a whole bunch of stocks that we like on on, on the show. It's just about waiting for where you think is the right opportunity to get those. And remember, you're never going to get it 100% correct. You know, you're going to buy into stuff and then you're going to have to write it down. But again, the psychology is that if you were happy to pay, for example, $100 for a stock right now, if that was your assessment that this is fair value because I've checked the earnings, I know what dividends are coming through, I know what cash flows are, then you shouldn't be unhappy if it drops to 90 or it drops to 80 because if your investment thesis was sound at 100 and you were happy with the projected return on your equity at that level, it doesn't matter where the stock goes thereafter. Exactly right. And that's the concept of buying the dips. The problem is the investment thesis at 100 has often not been well developed. And I think people are starting to learn that. And the point is you need to develop an investment thesis. Stonks do not always go up. It was a very easy year on the markets last year to buy in sort of April, May and to make a fortune over the next eight months. It was literally throwing darts. It's not real life. And now is where the hard work starts to actually get to grips with these techniques and, uh, and, and learn from them. I guess all of us, we're all still, still learning, no question about it. Well, that's pretty much all we've got time for. Crazy week in the markets, very exciting. It'll be incredibly interesting to see how it all pans out. Good luck your side. I know you are, you are very active in your, your portfolio as well. So let's hope that uh, Team Magic Markets has a good week. I hope that our Magic Markets listeners certainly have a good week in the markets. And we'll do this again next week. Thanks, Ghost. It's always a pleasure. And to our listeners, remember, go out there, listen on the podcast platform of your choice, give us a great rating, and spread the news. Spread the news on social media. You know, we're here. We're guys that, you know, hope you like, you enjoy listening to us and some of the content we're putting out there. We've got our heads hopefully screwed on the right way. And let's do this again next week, same time, same place. Remember to visit thefinanceghost.com and monos.com for more detailed insights. This podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Please consult your personal financial advisor.